Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. You can find it on page 977 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. Okay, so right over at the welcome table, right to my right over here, we have Bibles for you. If you do not own a Bible, we want to give you one. It's the Story ESV. It's a great Bible. We want that to be yours. We want you to read the Bible, to know the Bible, to love the Bible. And so we want to make that available to you. Now, I said that we are going to look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and that's only partially true. We're going to focus most of our attention on verses 14 through 19, and we'll pick up, Lord willing, verses 20 through 21 next time. But we've got to get to the climax. 20 through 21 is the climax of this passage, so we can't ignore it. We've got to at least talk about it just a little bit this morning, and we'll deal with it more next time. The passage that we're looking at today is a prayer. It's a God-given prayer, God-directed, God-inspired prayer. It's a prayer that teaches us how to pray. It's one of the most recognized prayers in all of Scripture. You know, it's been said that we can learn a great deal about what people love and what people believe in the way that they pray, how often they pray, who they pray to, what they pray for, what's their attitude, disposition when they pray. We can learn much about what we love and what we believe in the way that we pray. So I want us to think just for a minute before we get started, I want you to think, reflect to yourself about your prayer life. What have you been praying for this week? What has been your attitude to the one that you've been praying to? What's been your disposition towards the Lord? I mean, have you, have you been joyous? Has it been filled with thanksgiving? Has there been a Longing, uh, frustration, anger. Do you feel like he's even there? Who have you been praying for this week? What's been your just overall demeanor, your overall attitude? Are you feeling discouraged? Are you tempted to lose heart? Or are you experiencing a lot of joy and gratitude? What's your prayer life been like this week? Now, I don't, I don't want to ask these questions to discourage you. As if to say, man, there's one thing, one more thing that I did not get right this week. I only want us to consider the manner in which we pray so that by God's grace, we can grow in our imitation of this God-given prayer for spiritual strength. And that sounds good, doesn't it? Spiritual strength. Anybody here know how to define that? I think we're a lot better defining and exemplifying spiritual weakness more than we are spiritual strength. We're defined more by discouragements or feeling worn out or frustrated. We're burdened by difficult trials and we pray that our circumstances would change over and over again. And they don't. And let's face it, often when we think about praying for spiritual strength, what we're thinking about is is a change of situation. Or at least a change in the way that we feel about our situation. We're looking for some incidental, some immediate change. And so when we pray, thinking that we're praying for spiritual strength, we often fall into this tendency to pray for incidentals. I want my circumstance to be changed. You know, my job just really stinks. I want them to can my boss. Right? This person is impossible to live with. Can you kill them, please? Not, Not that far, but you know what I'm saying. Right? Or we pray at least that... 
that we would feel a whole lot better about it, that, that we would just kind of like, I don't know, just kind of float above, just feel just great about the situation. <clears throat> but what we're doing right there is praying for relief. We're not praying for spiritual strength. We're praying for relief. And when God answers those prayers, we thank him for the relief because he gave us what we wanted. But when he doesn't, when he doesn't answer that prayer, we think that he's not there. We're tempted in our hearts, though we would never say it outwardly, to curse him in our hearts. Or we just forget praying altogether. Maybe, maybe not about everything, but maybe about that particular situation. This seems impossible. I can't, it, it's not going to change. Therefore, I'm going to avoid it. Now, this may surprise you, but only praying for relief or incidental change is not praying for spiritual strength. It's actually perpetuating spiritual weakness. Not that it's wrong to pray for those things. Okay, so don't hear that. Okay, I'm not saying that it's wrong to want incidental change. That's not, it's not bad. But if that's all that we're praying for, or if that's primarily what we're praying for, or even if we're praying for it half the time, we're missing the point of prayer altogether. If we're only praying for relief and circumstances to change, we miss what God is seeking to do in this event, in this circumstance, in this situation right here and now to achieve his purposes in me. What I want to be accomplished in my prayer is not necessarily that God's purposes would be fulfilled as much as I would experience some glow of euphoria that takes away all of the pain and all of the bad feelings that I'm experiencing, even if it's just for a moment. Just for a moment. Well, guys, do you realize that that's the same thing that drug addicts do? They just use different means. Well, this morning we will see that spiritual strength doesn't come from praying for change of feelings, change of circumstances or situations, but praying, praying for God's purposes to be accomplished in us. Seeking his intended results. As we, in our prayers, affirm who God is and what he has done, and we rest in that, and we know that we are confident in God's ability to do and accomplish all of his purposes, we are changed. We are transformed from the inside to out. Not circumstances change, not feelings change, but I am changed, and I become more like Christ. It produces in us Spiritual strength, which is God's intended result. God wants us to be confident in prayer and its effectiveness. And so he assures us that praying in accordance with God's nature and purposes will produce God's intended results. I'll say that again. Praying in accordance with God's nature and purposes will produce God's intended results. Notice I said God's intended results, not ours. Growth happens as we pray in a way that is consistent with God's will and God's character. And as we actively depend upon God's nature, God's purposes, God's intentions for us and in us, it will change us from the inside out. It will lead us to greater faith. It will lead us to more intimate knowledge of his love for us. It will lead us to spiritual maturity and it will lead us to wholehearted worship to God. 
So let's see that this morning in our text. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In this prayer, Paul repeatedly moves from who God is and what he has done to praying that God's intended results, the results of his nature and his purposes, would become more and more and more a reality in us. He reminds us of the truth about God, and then he prays that it would take deep and lasting root in our hearts. And so first we will see that Paul prays that God's abundant grace would produce even greater faith in us, that we move from grace to faith. Overwhelmed by all that God has done for us in Christ, Paul is led to pray yet a second time in this very short letter. He's already prayed in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And now just a, that, that we would, he's praying that we would take a hold of all that God has done for us in Christ. He's praying that we would understand, that we would grasp it at the core of our being, at the core of who we are. That we would know what God has done for us in Christ. And yet here he is just a few paragraphs later praying the same thing again. The first prayer was focused on this hope, this inheritance, this immeasurable power that is ours in the reigning Christ. And now here he is praying, honestly, for basically the same things. Different wordings, slightly different focus, but basically the same thing. That we would take hold of what it means to be in Christ. Now that ought to tell us just how difficult it is for us to grasp the immensity of all that God has done for us in Christ, that Paul would have to pray twice, multiple times in this very short letter. He prays for this reason. See it right there in verse 17. Now this reason could be all that he has talked about in chapters one through three. All that God has done for us in Christ, all that God has done to save us and redeem us and adopt us and give us his promised inheritance and fill us with the Holy Spirit and all of that. And he's compelled by this truth. He's motivated and it just leads him to pray. But more than likely, he's he's praying about everything that he's talked about since the last time he's prayed. So chapter one ended with a prayer. So he's probably thinking back on everything that he's talked about in chapter two and so far in chapter three. And now he's praying yet again that that truth would take root in our lives. He bows his knees before the Father because being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which God has loved us, that he has taken those who were dead in their sins, 
who have followed this world, who have followed the devil, who have been enslaved by their very sinful nature and were condemned under God's just and holy wrath and God made them alive. God saved them by his grace. God made rebels fellow citizens of his kingdom. God took condemned sinners and made him, them his children, members of his own family. In mercy, God has broken down every dividing wall of hostility and has made them one in Christ. He has reconciled us both vertically to God, but also horizontally to one another. In his grace, God has taken Paul, this man who is the very least of all the saints, a man who hated Gentiles and persecuted Gentiles, the lowest of the low, and he made this man a steward of his gospel, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who all mankind has rebelled against. They've taken that very breath that God has given them and they've used it to curse his very name. God, that God, the God of the universe has done for them what they could never do for themselves. He saved them from themselves. Through Christ they've been reconciled to God and have been brought together in unity to get this. To display the wisdom and the grace and the goodness and the power of God to all that he has created. God has done that. And it's for this reason that Paul bows his knees before the Father. It actually brings Paul to his knees. And this might not seem like much, but it's a very telling statement. Because you see, Jews, like Paul, in that day would pray standing up. In fact, you can see pictures of the wailing wall. You see Jews standing up, oftentimes hands raised. That's how Jews pray. And for those few times in Scripture where you see knees bowed, like Psalm 5 that we looked at a little while ago, well, that's a very telling expression. Something very significant is going on there. It's huge. That posture communicates... This intense emotion and a humble recognition of authority. It's an indication of just how desperate Paul was. How he was utterly dependent upon the power of another. But yet he's bowing to the one who he knows is. Knowing who God is and what God has done in Christ moved Paul to fall on his knees and to passionately plead with him. Paul also calls this creator God of the universe, this authority over all things, calls him father. You recognize authority. You don't don't do that, right? I mean, could you imagine like, I don't know, going up to Obama and being like, hey, hey, dad, what's up, dad? You wouldn't do that. And Obama's nothing in light of the God of the universe, right? But he calls him father. He does so eight times in the book of Ephesians alone. And though he's the sovereign God of the universe who does all things according to the counsel of his will, has authority over every power and every dominion for all time, God still communicates intimately with his children. He adopts them into his family. He makes them heirs with Christ. That those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin are now part of God's own household, part of his family. And by his spirit, we have access to him freely and without fear. 
This is not some distant God that Paul is praying to. He is our Father. He's our Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now this phrase is a little confusing here. It's a little challenging. What this doesn't mean is that we have families, little families or little kingdoms in heaven. Okay? It does not mean that. We have one family in heaven. God's. We're all a part of it. What Paul is doing here is he's playing with words. And you see it in the Greek, right? He uses this word father, patros, and he uses this word for family or clan, patria. Okay, he's playing with it. He likes to play with words. And so it seems best to understand what he's saying here is every family, every clan, every group, every division, every subgrouping that has a father, that has a leader, that has a head, that has some type of authority structure, either heavenly, like these rulers and authorities that he's just talked about, or like the earthly common household, that no matter what this grouping is, God has named them. He has authority over them. This is the part that Paul is trying to emphasize here, that God has authority over every possible group that you can imagine. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, Edomite, Ishmaelite, Roman, American, these demonic cosmic powers, Redeemer Church, or the Daniel's household. It doesn't matter. God, who our Heavenly Father who created each of them, has authority over them all. He has named them. And so Paul is praying with the greatness and yet the nearness of God our Father in mind. He is completely sovereign over all things and yet he is lovingly approachable as our Father. That's who Paul is praying to. Our sovereign and yet loving Father. Now what is he praying for? Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's prayer, he prays on the basis of who God is and what God has done in Christ, that God's purposes, that God's intended results would come to complete fruition in our hearts, in the hearts of his readers. Or as John Stott said, the basis, the ground, the reason for Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose. The reason why Paul prays is because he knows what God's purpose is. Not that he's trying to manipulate God's purposes, but he's seeking God's ends. He's not praying that their circumstances would change. He's not praying, okay, God, if you would just only end this persecution for them, if you would only just remove me from prison, if you would only just make them the moral majority in their country, that you would give them offices and city council, well, then that's what they need. Then we'll see your purposes fulfilled. He's not praying that their feelings about their situation would change. He's not praying that they would have some mystical, spiritual experience that would momentarily alleviate their hearts and minds so they would just feel better about their situation and know that God is with them. That's not what he prays for at all. He prays on the basis of who God is. And what God has done, that God would accomplish all of his purposes in them, even if things stay exactly the way they are, or even if they get worse. What's the ground of his prayer? That because of the riches of God's glory, out of the wealth of God's glorious grace, it's founded upon the very nature of God. And what does he pray for? 
that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He prays that God would give them strength. Literally, he says that God might give you to be strengthened with power. Now, let's ask you a question. Let's do a little deductive work here. Why do you need strength? Why would you need strength? You need strength because things are hard, right? Because they're difficult, because they're challenging. I don't need strength to go to bed. I don't need strength to sit on the beach and soak up sun. I don't need strength to push buttons on a remote. I need strength to get out of bed. I need strength to labor and to persevere and to do hard things. Paul is praying for strength because he knows that the Christian life is not easy. That it's difficult, that it's trying, that it will test your very being. He knows that it's not comfortable. He's not praying for their security and for their well-being that just life would be all happy. He's praying for strength. It will be filled with trials and tribulations, adversities and hardships. Following Christ by faith will be difficult. And so he prays to our Father that God would give them strength. And who knows that better than a man sitting in prison? You know, strength in the midst of adversity, it doesn't come from you. Resiliency in the Christian life is not an innate quality. Right? It's not that Paul is just an exceptional figure here. Well, that was Paul's lot. That was Paul's life. But, you know, that's not what God is calling me to. God is calling me to a nice 401k. God is calling me to a nice, comfortable life here in Champaign-Urbana where I don't really have to deal with hard people. I'm just... See you guys. <laughs> no. <clears throat> it's not a result of some... It's not that... Paul had some great personality, you know, like he's a, I don't know, I don't know personality traits very well, but it's not because of that. It's not because he's a, he's a DI or a DC on the disc test, right? He must be strengthened with the power of God. It doesn't come from self-will or self-determination. It is given by the God of the universe, a power that comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells in the hearts of men, whose power is given by the Holy Spirit in your very inner being, the very core of your being, your very heart, your very soul. And God doesn't strengthen us by the Holy Spirit outwardly to make our muscles bigger so that we can lift a bus or that we can score a touchdown. But the truth of who God is and the truth of what he has done in Christ is so implanted within our hearts and within our minds that it gives us strength to remain faithful no matter what circumstances or hostilities or trials or afflictions or persecutions or imprisonments we might have to face. That's the strength he's talking about. And as much as we would like for God to give us the superhuman strength of Samson so that we can go out and slay a thousand of our enemies with the jawbone of a donkey, the strength that God gives us is the strength of Jesus that says, when dying on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's the type of inner strength that we receive from the Holy Spirit. We might be faithful to Christ in the midst of every trial. And what is the purpose of this prayer for 
spiritual strength. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we've already seen that it is God's grace, that it is God's power that saves us. He is the one who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He elects us. He adopts us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He unites us together. He gives us inheritance. He gives us his promised Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts. He is the one who makes us alive. He is the one who unites us with Christ. It is by his grace that we are saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. And that even our good works have been prepared by him beforehand that we should walk in and because we are his workmanship. We have already seen that all of salvation, including our faith, is a gift of God's grace. All of it. But what Paul is telling us here in verse 17 is not only that our initial salvation, our initial faith is a gift of God's grace, but that our ongoing, our progressive, continual faith, the indwelling of Christ perpetually in our hearts as we become more and more and more like him, never, that is the result of God's power too. That is what God is strengthening us for. That we might live in faith and become more like Christ who lives in us. You see, we don't receive faith so that we can stand at the front door, never moving beyond it. As God strengthens us with his power through his spirit in our inner being, our faith is strengthened and we become a home that better reflects the character of Christ who lives in us. You know, when Phyllis and I moved to Urbana, we bought a house before we ever ever moved up here. Because what we wanted to do is we wanted to load up the truck there in Louisville. And we wanted to come in and we wanted to unload straight into our new house. Now, if any of you were here from the beginning, you know that it took quite a while for our new house to become our home. Right? We, the walls were, the, and some of them still are, this ugly, flat, builder's beige. Right? We had this one room, actually the room where we meet for our community group now. There's nothing in it but boxes. We didn't have any furniture for it. It was empty. We certainly didn't have anything hung up on the walls. And apart from the grace of God working through my wife, we probably still wouldn't. (laughs) But you know, over time, gradually, little by little, our house is becoming our home. We've painted. Right? We've got some more furniture. We finished three quarters of the basement. We finally hung pictures up on the wall and there are toys and books everywhere. Over time, regardless of situations or circumstances, no matter what life has thrown us, whether they be trials or storms, our house has become more and more a reflection of who we are as a family. It represents us now more than it ever did before. Now it's by no means done and we continue to work on it but it becomes a better reflection of who we are. And you know, the, the Christian life is similar in many ways. When Christ originally purchased the house, your life, the Holy Spirit moved in. But your life wasn't a very good picture of Christ who lived in your house, was it? But as God continues to strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in your, inner dwe- uh, in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, progressively, little by little, bit by bit, regardless of any obstacle or any storm, that home be- resembles the nature and character of its owner more and more and more. 
By God's grace, he gives you more and more faith so that your life becomes a better reflection of Christ who dwells in your hearts. It is God's persistent grace that produces faith in you so that you are becoming progressively more like Christ. That's what Paul means here. And so friends, let this be a tremendous comfort to you. You don't build the house. You're not responsible to get it all cleaned up and get it all together before Jesus will come in and dwell in that house. Right? It's not that you just need to muster up more faith. I just got to have more faith. I got to have more faith. No. What we say is that faith, salvation, Christ dwelling in your hearts, the Holy Spirit's work on your soul, all of that is the gift of God's continual, ever-present, and powerful grace. He is continually working. He is the one who must strengthen us so that Christ might continually dwell in our hearts through faith. We don't do it. A change of circumstances or feelings on the matter does not produce spiritual strength. God does. Our gracious and sovereign Father works so that Christ might continually dwell in our hearts through faith. And as the riches of God's continual, lavish, ever-present, powerful grace are showered upon us, we receive and we respond in faith. We receive and then we respond in faith. But the power is not ours. The power is His. And so the key to applying this verse is not seeking to fix things. It's not seeking to fix your life, but to meditate upon who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and praying alongside Paul that God's purposes would be accomplished in us. And so faith is the progressive product of God's grace at work in us. Second in verses 17 through 19, Paul prays that a recognition of God's love for us in Christ would result in spiritual maturity. Now, beginning in the second half of verse 17, Paul is building upon his previous request. He gives us the reason why he prays that God, by his grace, would give us strength so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. He continues that you... Being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, if you are here and you've struggled to embrace the love of God in Christ for you, I want you to pay very close attention to what Paul says in these verses. You feel like you don't deserve the love of God? None of us do. You feel like there's just not enough that you can do to earn or to pay back God's love for you in Christ? Well, take great comfort because none of us can It's not something that we can ever earn or deserve, but by his own initiative, because of who God is, God acted in love towards us. If you look back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we've gone there many times. We will continue to go there many, many times. It says, but God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our sins, even though we were living as rebels, rejecting God at our core of our being, God made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In Romans 5, verse 8, Paul tells us there that God shows shows, not that God has shown at one point in time, but that God continually shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just to make Jim happy, in 1 John 4.10, it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And has sent his son, his one and only son, to be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice of God for our sins. God's love for us is in no way dependent upon who we are and what we do, but upon who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's saying, since you, because you have been rooted and grounded in God's love. Right? He uses two metaphors here, an organic metaphor and an architectural metaphor to show us just how deeply secured we are in the love of God. He says, because you have been planted in God's love and firmly secured by his roots like that of a tree, because you have been established and grounded and built upon the steady foundation of God's love, because of God's love for us in Christ, we are like a firmly rooted tree or a well-built home. That stability in the midst of every storm comes from the sure foundation of God's love. That his love is the soil in which our lives take root. His love is the foundation that our life is built upon. And so rejoice that you have been firmly rooted and securely grounded in God's love for you. These are perfect participles. It means that it is already accomplished but it has ongoing, perpetual, continual results. You see, God's love is the very anchor of our souls beginning to end. But God's love doesn't end with salvation, which is why Paul continues to pray in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now an entry level knowledge of the love of God is not enough. And so he prays again that God would give us the strength so that we would grasp, so that we would comprehend, so that we would truly know in the very depths of our souls along with all of God's people from everywhere and for all time the immensity of God's love for us in Christ. I think that this is fascinating because apparently it requires divine strength for us to take hold of the greatness of Christ's love. We can't grasp it by human means. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith so that we would become strong enough to grasp it, strong enough to understand. And the picture seems to be here of a struggle to prevail over ignorance or prevail over confusion. Confusion. 
I mean, have you ever been confused and you've labored to understand something? That you've had to work really hard mentally to be able to grasp what it means. Maybe, maybe I don't know, you were in calculus and it was a really difficult math problem. Or maybe you went to Target and you bought a piece of furniture and you're just struggling to know which end is up on this stinking manual. Or maybe you've been reading about Obamacare. I don't know. But you're struggling really, really hard to figure out what this is all about. And finally, you have a breakthrough. Like Lewis Pasteur discovering the cure for rabies. Are you struggling right now to grasp the love of God in Christ for you? Well, you need to understand that truly coming to realize this takes effort. It takes time. It takes diligence. It takes study. It takes meditation. It takes work. It takes theology. But when we start to get it, when it permeates our hearts and our minds as it's firmly rooted in our very soul, it changes everything. Paul prays that we would be able to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us in Christ. Now he uses terms of measurements, but he's not suggesting that we could possibly quantify God's love for us in Christ. Like, oh yeah, I get it. It's yea tall by so long. I, I get that. I understand it. I can measure it. Now, Paul is building anticipation here. He's trying to communicate the immensity and the vastness of God's love. It's a love that cannot be measured. For example, astronomers believe that the universe is 48 gigaparsecs wide. Or in layman's terms... 156 billion light years across. That measurement is lost on us, right? We, we, don't, we can't grasp that. We can't comprehend what that is. 48 giga what? I think I learned about that in Star Wars. They didn't make that word up, apparently. But you know, we can go out in the dead of night and we can look up the stars, knowing that each star some of those, you know, so many of them, maybe as big as our sun. And we get an idea of just how really, really big the universe is. We can go to a planetarium and we can look through telescopes at, at the universe beyond what the eye can see. We can study pictures of the cosmos in books. Maybe we might even be able to just take a ride out on a, on a rocket ship and we watch the earth disappear into the blackness of space and we begin to realize, we begin to start to comprehend however small, just how big the universe is. But the love of Christ is bigger than all that. He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying that we would be able to know what is beyond knowing. Not just to know up here in some abstract idea like grasping the infinite, but that we would know in our hearts as we truly experience the love of Christ more and more and more, digging deeper and deeper and deeper, but never plumbing the depths of Christ's love for us, never comprehending the magnitude of Christ's love. Peter O'Brien said of this text, that no matter how much we know of the love of Christ, how fully we enter into his love for us, there's always more to know and more to experience. 
And the implication in light of the following words is that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we should unless we are empowered by God to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. Now, friends, I just hearing and thinking about the love of God in Christ for you not grip you? I mean, does it not sound sweet to you? Does it not pr- just lead you to just uh, worship? It's profound. Does it not make you want to dive deeper and deeper in to learn more and experience more of the vastness of Christ's love for us? Is it not drawing out your hearts right now in the immensity of Christ's love for you? Well, if it's not, then you just don't get it. I mean, if this doesn't lead you, like, if you think you've got this all figured out, you prove that you don't. This is part of the unsearchable riches of Christ that we will spend all eternity exploring but never reach the end. God's love for us in Christ is incomprehensible. And we sing that song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. God's love for us in Christ surpasses knowledge. But Paul prays that God would strengthen us to grasp it. Why? For this intended purpose in the second half of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We read in Colossians 2 verses 9 through 10. That in Christ the whole fullness of deity, that is the whole fullness of God, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. So Jesus himself is the fullness of God and we, the church, have been filled in him. And yet Paul prays here in our passage that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now just at a surface level, that seems like a bit of a contradiction, does it not? We are filled. We need to be filled. Well, let's keep going with it. Let's add to the confusion. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Paul already said that God has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Get this, the church is the fullness of him, Christ, who fills all in all. So the church is already the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. Now skip ahead to Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul tells us that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And here's where we need to really zoom in. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So wait a minute. The church which is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all, is still needed for us to all attain unity and knowledge to mature manhood, which is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ in believers being spiritual maturity, but the church is the fullness of Christ, which is still needed for the fullness of Christ. What are you talking about, Paul? Is this a contradiction here? Well, it's not. Let me explain it this way. When you purchase a ticket 
of admission. Let's say to an amusement park. Well, if you know anything about me personally, I would never do that. So I need to sweeten the deal a little bit. Okay. It's an amusement park where once you get in, everything inside is free. All free food, all free drinks, all the games are free. It's air conditioned and you never have to wait in line. If that's the case, then I'll go. All right, you ever want to invite me to an amusement park? If the, that, those are the conditions, those are the requirements. If they meet them, I'll happily go. Okay? Well, the moment that I purchase that ticket of admission, then all of the privileges that come along with that admission are mine, right? I am entitled at that point to all the free drinks and all the free food and stand, like not having to stand in line going on rides without sweating. That's what I'm entitled to when I get the ticket. But I don't get to experience those all at once, do I? It's not that I just open the door, the gates open, I walk in and bam, I'm suddenly hit in the face and I've experienced everything that that park has to offer. No, no, I experience it as I go through the park, right? I, I learn to enjoy it. I experience all that that park has to offer as I go from ride to ride, from one booth to the next. It's there that it becomes real and I enjoy it. My knowledge and my understanding of the privilege of that ticket grows and matures as I go from one ride to the next and I eat all that yummy junk food. Similarly, when the grace of God saves us, the moment that we respond in repentance and faith, then every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. We are filled at that moment with all the fullness of God. But just as God continually strengthens us so that our faith might grow and we might reflect Christ more, just as God must strengthen us so that we can understand more and more of the depths of Christ's love for us so that we can actually become more mature, our you see that this is progressively working itself out. That the goal of this progressive faith and this increasing knowledge of God's love is to help us to take hold and to actually become what we now are in Christ. Yes, the church is the fullness of Christ, but we're still figuring that out. Have we got that figured out here at Redeemer Church? Are we the fullness of Christ? Yes and no. We still have much to learn. We still have much to experience. He's calling, though the church has declared the fullness of Christ, that's our identity. Yet Paul prays that we would live in light of that identity, that we would become who we really are, spiritually mature, being filled unto all the fullness of God. Holy as he is holy. Perfect as he is perfect. This is the work of God, not us, that we would fully experience Christ, a full experience that we will only have when Christ finally returns and unites all things in heaven and earth on him. But until then, we pursue it, we pray for it, we long for it, we drive for it, we move towards that end, we experience what it means to be the fullness of Christ. And that's not as individuals. That is as the church. Now we can't think of applying this passage without at least glancing at the climax of Paul's prayer. And though we are going to deal with it exclusively next time, we want to join Paul in this prayer of praise. 
You see, not only is God's grace increase and sustain our faith, not only does he strengthen us for a deeper understanding of the immensity of Christ's love so that we would grow to spiritual maturity, but finally, understanding the greatness of God's glory compels us to worship. Knowing that all of salvation from beginning to end is all of grace, Paul gives praise to God. He says, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, when we realize who God is and all that he has done for us in Christ, how he is not only provides us entrance into Christ, but progress and perfection in Christ, then the only fitting response for those who have been redeemed, those who are being sanctified, and those who will one day be glorified is worship. We let our hearts sing, not just when we gather here on Sunday, but all the time. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. So what do we do with this passage? We pray in accordance with God's nature and purposes for his intended results to come to completion in us. We join Paul in this prayer, not asking for relief from struggle, but that God would be using whatever circumstance, whatever situation we find ourselves in to accomplish his purposes in us together. Remember, Paul is praying this from prison, and yet he knows that God is using his imprisonment for the glory of God and for the good of his people, Paul included. Let's meditate. Let's think deeply about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And rather than pursuing our own purposes to the exclusion of God's, may we align and conform our purposes to his. And let us pursue that by his grace. Let's give ourselves to the things that would lead us to greater faith, to a greater comprehension of the vastness of Christ's love that would lead us to spiritual maturity, to be filled unto all the fullness of God, knowing that it's going to be hard work, knowing that it's going to take time, a lifetime, that it's going to be difficult, and that we need God's strength to do that. I mean, practically, that could look any number of ways. I mean, if this is for the church, step one is, are you a part of the church? Have you come to faith in Christ? Is that being represented and manifest visibly in your life because you are committed to a covenant body? Well, maybe you are, but you just need to get more involved. Maybe you just need to, or in the process, but you need to get involved in a community group. You need to live your life well with other people. Maybe you need to do the hard thing and really open yourself up to accountability so you join a life transformation group. Because you want to see this text bear fruit in your life. You want to reach spiritual maturity. And you know you need brothers or sisters that can point you to that and ask you hard questions and hold you accountable. Maybe that's 
regularly spending time in word and prayer. Maybe that's seeking just to understand more what all of this means. And so I need to invest. I need to study. I need to work hard. Maybe that's joining, you know, coming to one of our foundations courses so you can learn more about the Lord. Maybe that's doing something that you know that God has been calling you to do for quite some time. And you've been putting it off. You've been afraid to commit. You've been unwilling at this point to do the hard thing. What is God calling you to do so that by his ever-present grace, you might be transformed into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another? The obvious response to this passage, the one that God is clearly calling us all to without question, is prayer and praise. Let this passage be a prayer for one another. Pray this for each other. And let's join together in this exaltation of the glory of God. That now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for this reminder that the Christian faith, that the Christian salvation, that, that progress in faith, that the culmination of faith as being filled with the fullness of God is not about us, but it is your work in us. Forgive us for the ways that we fail and we've, we just failed to take a hold of it, that we've failed to really grasp it, we failed to live in accordance with it. But I pray that we would be this morning overwhelmed by your grace in Christ, that we would be overwhelmed by the love that you've shown us in Christ, that we would be overwhelmed by your power and your glory so that we might receive and respond, receive and respond to greater faith, to maturity, and to worship. Lord, help us to worship Christ now in spirit and truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.